Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to episode 90 of Energy Talks. In episode 88, I interviewed Dr. David Lazell, who is the technical director for the Transition Accelerator, about the techno-economics of hydrogen. So David argued that while hydrogen may not be as efficient as electricity, there are many applications like steelmaking or aviation that are difficult to decarbonize, which makes hydrogen the logical fuel to replace uh, fossil fuels. Now, shortly after, I was contacted by Paul Martin, who is a member of the Hydrogen Science Coalition. He's also a chemical engineer with a 30-year history of working with making and using hydrogen and syngas. And he's a process development expert and serves as an uh, serves an international clientele through his private consultancy Spitfire Research. And he wanted to make the ca- economic case against hydrogen. So welcome to the interview, Paul. Pleased to be here. Now, this is why don't we start this conversation off with a brief description of what is the Hydrogen Science Coalition. Sure, we're a group of um, five people at the moment. Uh, We're all uh, co-founders. We're all people that have knowledge about hydrogen and its applications, but no vested interest in it one way or another. It's not not that we have uh, investments in batteries or or, uh, heat pumps or electric vehicles or things that might uh, motivate us to have an opinion negative towards hydrogen. We just... uh, intend to get the, um, the truth out there to people so that they understand uh, the aspects of hydrogen uh, as a decarbonization strategy uh, fully and completely, as opposed to merely being told one side of the story, which seems to be the, the way that things are going uh, today. There are a lot of interested parties who would benefit from hydrogen becoming part of the energy supply. And they're, of course, telling the truth with head nodding yes about hydrogen. And somebody needs to lean back and tell the truth with head nodding no to get the complete picture. And uh, that's what we do. So we're, it's, uh, the group consists of academics and uh, retired people, uh, engineers, and so on. A diversity of interests. And uh, we try to get the uh, message out. Well, th- this is interesting because everywhere I go as an energy journalist, I'm running into hydrogen. Uh, there is not an industry uh, that these days where hydrogen is not being proposed as part of the the alternate uh, alternative fuel mix. Uh, everything from uh, maritime shipping to aviation to long haul trucking to storage for intermittent wind and solar. Uh, and I've seen I've seen estimates that when we finally you know, the energy transition is more or less complete. 
that the primary energy mix globally will be 70% electricity and 30% hydrogen. So there's a lot of interest and governments everywhere are involved in this, of course. Canada has uh, a hydrogen strategy of sorts. Uh, various provinces like Alberta are, are busy putting together hydrogen roadmaps. The world uh, appears uh, to be hydrogen crazy at the moment. And David laid out a pretty good argument for why uh, why that why that is, and and I don't think he sugarcoated the idea that it's you know hydrogen is not as efficient as as electricity, and but what is the economic case against using hydrogen in, in the applications that I named and the many others that are being proposed? Well, <clears throat> that begs a long answer, but I'll try my best to be brief. Uh, the problem with hydrogen is that hydrogen is actually a massive decarbonization problem that we haven't be even begun to solve. Uh, basically, 99% of the hydrogen made in the world, we make about, about 120 million tons of the stuff a year, about 70 is pure hydrogen and about 50 is uh, mixtures of hydrogen with other gases called syngas. And Substantially, all of that is made from fossils without carbon capture. There's no green hydrogen made by electrolysis or blue hydrogen uh, made by, from fossils with carbon capture to speak of. You know, there's, there are projects here and there and lots of talk, uh, most of the talk being funded by government money. Very little actual earnest investment by interested parties uh, of their own money. So... Yeah, what one often hears about hydrogen is that it's the Swiss army knife of the energy transition. And it, <laughs> they couldn't have picked a, a better analogy if they tried. If you think about a Swiss army knife, it's a handy thing in a pinch. You might use it in an emergency. You know, great thing to take camping with you. But if you have access to the real tool for the job, you're never going to reach for your Swiss, Swiss army knife instead. And that's hydrogen as an energy carrier or energy storage medium or a fuel in a nutshell. Hydrogen's problem isn't just that it's inefficient, and it is inefficient, let's be clear. It's so inefficient that uh, the inefficiency alone merits uh, some concern. But hydrogen's problem is that it's not only inefficient, it's also ineffective as a fuel. So let me explain to you what I mean by effectiveness. Gasoline is wonderfully effective. We put gasoline in cars and cars convert only about 15% of the energy in that gasoline to forward motion. And we think that's actually a pretty good deal because gasoline's high energy density, the fact that it's a liquid that we can pour it, we can transport it easily, a truckload can carry an enormous quantity to refuel large numbers of other vehicles. Uh, its effectiveness trumps its efficiency. And if it wasn't for this pesky global warming thing, uh, which is very real and we must address, we'd be totally happy to keep on using gasoline. But hydrogen as a substitute has all kinds of problems from an effectiveness perspective. The biggest of which is the fact that its energy density per unit volume is really terrible. The stuff is big. It takes up a lot of space and it takes up a lot of space even when you compress it to enormous pressures like 700 atmospheres or 10,000 PSI. It takes up a lot of space even when you spend 30% of the energy in the hydrogen to turn it into a 
cryogenic liquid. You know, even then it's only 70 or 71 kilograms a cubic meter. So a tiny fraction of the uh, density of something like gasoline. Its energy density per unit mass is good, but per unit volume, it's terrible. And it's this combination of effectiveness and efficiency that makes hydrogen a really bad idea as a fuel, which is why at present we do not use it as a fuel at all. Why is there so much interest globally? I, this hydrogen uh, has, uh, now my take on this is that hydrogen has kind of emerged in the last five to 10 years as an alternative fuel and that there wasn't a lot of interest prior to that. Now I may be completely wrong about that, it's my impression. Uh, is that the case? And, and why has it become of so much interest to governments particularly and to heavy industries uh, uh, who are interested in decarbonization. Why are we, why are we hydrogen crazy? When it, it, you just made the argument, which sounded pretty convincing to me, that we, sh that we shouldn't be at all. Well, <laughs> first of all, it's not new. Um, we've been interested in hydrogen as an alternative to fossil fuels since the 1970s. And in fact, I think we're on our third uh, official major attempt at it. I was involved in the last major one, which was in the late 1990s. As a participant, I was working for a company that uh, was working on a project with uh, a couple big oil companies trying to make hydrogen reformers to convert natural gas into, into hydrogen for use in fuel cells. And originally it was going to be for vehicles. And then they switched over to trying to do com combined heat and power in homes once they realized that the vehicles thing was a lost cause. And what, what was fascinating is, well, first off, you can understand why people uh, reach for hydrogen. They reach for hydrogen because, um, it, you know, at first glance, it, you can burn it. It's a fuel. You can burn it. Uh, and you don't make any CO2. So when you uh, approach the problem of how do we supply energy in a decarbonized future? And you do it in a simple-minded way, which is what else can we burn? The answer you get is hydrogen. So it's conceptually simple. The meme of hydrogen, you know, the, the, the simple idea of it is compelling. The problem is that the devil's in the details. And in fact, he's not hiding in the details. He's there waving his pitchfork at you. And uh, that was the thing that we discovered. You know, I was being flown down to Houston every couple of weeks to work on this project. And then the bunch of us would go out for a beer in Houston afterwards. And after a couple of beers, somebody would finally say, y'all realize that this is, you know, horse crap, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and then everybody would have a good laugh and say, yep, thermodynamics sucks. Uh, there's no fixing it. Uh, it is kind of a lost cause, isn't it? Yep, but we'll be back hard at it tomorrow because the bosses are paying. And there's an awful lot of that simple mindedness, you know, what else can we burn aside from fossils, you know, and instead of giving them John Cleese answer of more fossils, you um, end up burning hydrogen and uh, not a good idea. Well, having worked in Texas, I've been involved in a few of those conversations and, uh, and you, you got the, the, the drawl, not too bad. <laughs> I wasn't trying too hard. <laughs> the, <clears throat> okay. So, Let's talk about some of the use cases and where uh, that maybe address the issues you're talking about and, and just get your response to them. So 
hydrogen, let's talk about hydrogen as storage for wind and solar. Now, that I, uh, a frequent guest on, uh, on my video interviews is Dr. Chris Bataille, who is an economic modeler, and he wrote uh, a paper a couple of years ago about the potential in Alberta uh, to take wind, the elect, uh, cheap, cheap electricity from wind and solar because southern Alberta has great wind and solar resources. And during the day, make hydrogen, uh, which then could be stored in these enormous salt caverns uh, that are common on the prairies. And, and then, in, you know, when the, the wind stops blowing and the sun goes down, then that hydrogen would be used in converted uh, natural gas plants to generate electricity. So that seems to deal with your issue of volume and storage. Uh, and he was talking about, you know, well, first of all, you know, Alberta could start with, with blue hydrogen, methane steam uh, reformers to make blue hydrogen at about a dollar and a half a kilogram. And then eventually once uh, green hydrogen using electrolyzers, water, and cheap electricity come along, then the, the, the transition, uh, the, Alberta would transition to green. Uh, what's your take on that model? Okay, so there's a whole bunch of things in there. We'll try to take them apart piece by piece. First of all, blue hydrogen isn't really blue, it's blackish blue and bruise colored. A steam methane reformer generates a lot of CO2 in two forms. One is in the, in the hydrogen gas mixture, the synthesis gas mixture that comes out of the plant, and that's easy enough to capture, and Shell Quest is doing that right now. They're capturing about 78% of the CO2 in that uh, syngas stream, but that's only 35% of the CO2 coming out of that plant in net terms. And when you take the methane leakage into account, it's 21% at a cost of $125 a ton uh, of CO2 uh, emissions averted. So it's really expensive. And by the way, that $1.50 a kilogram, that's black hydrogen. You can't do any carbon capture for $1.50 a kilogram. Adding carbon capture to it doubles the price, at least, if you're going to do a decent job of, you know, you're going to capture more than 35% of the CO2 that's coming out, you're going to double the price. Uh, so on the other side of it, then there you look at it, let's, let's look at it from the point of view of electrolysis. So you've got a wind turbine, it generates electricity, but not all the time. So now you've got an expensive piece of equipment, an electrolyzer, and then all its balance of plant and compressors and all that stuff. And that stuff isn't just not cheap, it's expensive. You can't afford to run it part-time. If you do, the hydrogen that it makes is expensive because the capital cost to, you know, you could, you could make 400 kilograms a day with a plant of a certain size, but you're only making 100 because you're only running at 25% of its duty. So every kilogram that comes out of such a plant is going to be expensive. Next, you're going to shove it into the ground. Now, I don't think there are salt caverns plentiful in Alberta. Uh, there are all kinds of geologic reservoirs into which you might shove CO2, but salt caverns have to be made. They're not just lying around. You have to pump water in and then take salt water out in order to make a salt cavern. Once you've got a salt cavern, you can store hydrogen. The trouble is that now you've got to turn it back into electricity again, if that's what you really want. And by the time you've done that, you've bought three kilowatt hours worth of electricity and you're only getting one back, best case. And in fact, in reality, that doesn't include any distribution of that hydrogen. 
You want to get that hydrogen to distant users who are going to turn it back into electricity. Now you have to build new infrastructure to carry pure hydrogen because the existing natural gas infrastructure can't do it. It's made out of the wrong materials of construction and its compressors are too small. So, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds great. Conceptually, it's easy. In reality, you can't afford to do it. Okay, um, fair enough. Uh, you, you've taken apart the case for, for that particular application. Um, what about the application for uh, long haul trucking? And this is an interesting one for me because it, it was assumed uh, not that long ago that uh, long haul uh, class eight semi-tractors uh, would not be electric, you know, and we, we'd heard Elon Musk talking about an electric semi, you know, for a number of years now. And, and there was, but there a lot, there was a fair amount of skepticism around that. And the, 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 uh, the weight of the batteries was going to be a, a huge disadvantage. And then all of a sudden in the last, I don't know, six months, maybe we've seen, you know, Tesla say that, uh, or Musk say anyway, on Twitter that Tesla was delivering its first its first electric semis. Uh, other uh, uh, other manufacturers uh, seem to be either beginning to do that or very close to it. Uh, but there still are those like David Lazell who argue that hydrogen has an application for long haul trucking. What's the argument against that? Um, well, first, there's the fact that you're going to have to pay three times as much for energy to move the vehicle the same distance. So that's a deal killer right there. And an industry that charges its customers a fuel surcharge, <laughs> the notion that if they have a choice between two energy sources and one of them costs a third what the other one does, and they, they for some reason or another, don't choose the cheaper one, that's a bit of a mystery. Another is that people assume without doing the calculations, that the extra battery weight is going to be a deal killer for, for freight. And what they don't do is look at what freight actually does. When you look at freight traffic, what you find is that about 75% of loads that move down the road uh, maximize the volume or the floor space of the trailer as opposed to the gross vehicle weight. So about 75% of loads don't care if there's a little bit of extra battery weight, even if there, there is. And by the time you take out the engine and the other unnecessary components of the drivetrain, the vibration management equipment, and so on, out of a Class 8 tractor, you have lots of weight for batteries, actually. The other thing that people don't seem to realize is that truck drivers can't drive continuously without rest. And so all, all the people that want to actually have a viable business in the future in transport need to do is to coordinate recharging with necessary rest breaks for safety. And they've got an opportunity to save a tremendous amount of, uh, of cost because they're saving a tremendous amount of energy. Hydrogen's problem as well is that although conceptually you just hook up a hose and you refill the tank and that's super fast, it's not a liquid, it's a gas. And it's a gas that heats up when it expands. So what you have to do actually is you have to have a giant chiller sitting on standby to pre-chill the hydrogen to minus 40 degrees so that when it uh, flows into the uh, composite tank on the, uh, on the vehicle, it doesn't overheat it. So in fact, the recharging using hydrogen, especially in big vehicles, 
isn't all that much faster than recharging an electric vehicle. So, you know, what's left? You've got a more expensive vehicle because it's more complicated. It uses three times as much energy. Then there's the extra capital cost. So in fact, the, the cost per unit energy is probably going to be about five times as much. Um, and the range is going to be about the same because you don't want to take up too much volume with big hydrogen tanks any more than you want to take up weight with extra batteries. Uh, and uh, you know, by the time you're done with this, it's not looking like there's much of a value proposition. Now, if you look at truly remote and rural transport, that's never going to be done with, uh, with batteries. It's just the fuel logistics makes that impossible, but you aren't gonna do it with hydrogen either. That's probably going to have to be either biofuels or we'll just stick with fossil diesel for those applications, but they don't amount to much in the way of greenhouse gas emissions, so they don't matter. This is another thing that, that kind of irritates me. People are always talking about the so-called hard to decarbonize sectors. And that's where hydrogen, hydrogen gets slotted in for the so-called hard to decarbonize sectors. Well, that implies that there are easy to decarbonize sectors. And why isn't all of our effort going into the easy to decarbonize sectors? Those are going to be the ones where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. We're going to reduce CO2 emissions by the greatest amount in return for the least investment and the least disruption. So shouldn't that be our focus? Why are we concerned about these marginal cases that are, amount to the last 5% of decarbonization? Worry about them once we've got the first 95% nearly done. Okay, well, that's a question I don't have an answer for. Uh, I, I do wanna just make a, a, an observation uh, about the, uh, the argument against uh, using uh, you know, electric semis. And one of them is the, um, the continuing uh, increase in uh, energy density of batteries. So they rise at about 7% per year. Uh, and there are all kinds of new materials and technologies that are coming along and batteries that we'll be seeing in the next five to 10 years, things like high, you know, silicon anodes and solid state uh, electro electrolytes and, and on and on and on. And it, it just seems to me that um, of all the uh, energy technologies that are uh, that are out there, uh, batteries are the most innovative. Tremendous amount of innovation going on in batteries that will so appear to be have the solution, potential solution for many of the problems we're talking about uh, without all of the issues that we're discussing around hydrogen and the limitations and the, you know, the, the extra costs and, and, and so on. So anyway, I just want to throw that out there. Uh, yeah, but I agree with you completely. I, I think batteries, uh, I think batteries are good enough already. They need to be cheaper. Uh, and there's lots of potential to make them cheaper, despite the fact that, you know, for a while materials availability uh, is going to drive prices up. Uh, you know, it was certainly that was certainly the case with petroleum as well. When initial petroleum wells were dug, we dug them where uh, oil was seeping out of the ground under its own pressure, you know, tar, tar ponds and tar pits and the like. And we had to find other places to find them when we realized just how tremendously valuable the stuff was. And the same is true, for instance, with lithium. Lithium is, um, you know, quite abundant, but 
we just haven't had much use for it before the lithium ion battery. So there's going to be a period of a decade or so where people realize that they have to get direct lithium extraction from brines working well, and then the lithium problem is going to go away. The other thing that I find really exciting is sodium ion batteries. And sodium ion batteries uh, appear, if you can believe CATL, which is a big manufacturer in China of lithium ion batteries, if you believe their claims, um, they have a battery that contains nothing that isn't absolutely earth abundant. The anode, the cathode, the active metal, the electrolyte, and even, even the, the plates, the, the foils that the anode and cathode are coated on. They can use aluminum for both. They don't need copper. That battery has the potential to be extremely cheap if it's mass produced. And a lot of these materials related issues uh, that people are raising as kind of nirvana policy arguments against the expansion of uh, uh, batteries as a decarbonization strategy, they're just going to go away. Right. Well, let's not, we don't want to get too sidetracked uh, from our primary uh, objective here, which is talk about hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And I do have some more questions for you. So one of them, I'm, I'm, I'm noticing now uh, more uh, articles coming out about the declining cost of Chinese electrolyzers uh, that are supposed to be, you know, like a quarter of the cost of the current uh, uh, generation of electrolyzers. What can you tell us about that? Sure. So uh, I have to explain for a moment what we're talking about. So an electrolyzer is basically a, a, a piece of equipment that has a bunch of electrode area that's used to pass a current through water to break water apart into hydrogen and oxygen. And so an electrolyzer plant consists of that electrolyzer stack, which is the stack of all of these, uh, these electrodes that, uh, that do the, the process of electrolysis. And then it has a balance of plant, which is pumps to pump water around and heat exchangers to take away the waste heat and then dryers and compressors and all kinds of other equipment. And the electrolyzer itself will probably get a lot cheaper. And that's what they're talking about is that, you know, once people start getting uh, uh, excited about making green hydrogen, and they, they buy large numbers of electrolyzers, we'll get better at making them and the price will drop just like we did with batteries and, and uh, wind turbines and, and solar panels and so on. The problem is the balance of plant is tanks and pumps and stuff like that, that we've already made billions of. That stuff's not getting cheaper. It's just not going to get cheaper. It's not subject to the same rights law learning curve stuff that people are talking about with respect to the electrolyzer. And by the way, it's half the cost. So the notion that, that the whole electrolyzer plant's price is going to drop by an order of magnitude is fanciful. It really is. People are talking about the stack getting cheaper and it will, but it's only half the cost and the balance of plant is not going to get that much cheaper. But it also begs the question, who's going to buy all of these expensive electrolyzers and the expensive hydrogen that they make in order to drive the multiplications of cost uh, of production to get the cost to come down? A lot of people are gonna to have to spend a lot of tens of billions of dollars on expensive electrolyzers and the hydrogen that they produce in order to drive this thing. So there has to be a destination at the end of all of that that makes sense. And hydrogen for heating, hydrogen for transport, they're not destinations for, for, for this. They're just not. So uh, that, that, you know, it begs the question, what, while there are a lot of things we could do, we shouldn't do. Because the, 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 uh, 
result isn't worth paying for. Okay, so you and I have been talking for almost half an hour here, and and I can't help but come away with the impression that anybody who thinks that hydrogen can be used in a, as an alternative fuel in transportation, in power generation, in aviation, in marine shipping is, is completely uh, out to lunch. And yet at the same time, I know I have, you know, acquaintances, friends of mine who are working uh, in the industry or interested in the industry. And they're, they're technical people like yourself, uh, who, uh, whose opinion I respect on these, uh, on these kinds of topics and, and they're, you know, four square for, for hydrogen. I can't square that. I, I don't know how to make sense of really of, easy. Of that. It's really easy. It's I, I've literally got a two panel Drake meme. <laughs> for this whole topic. I have no idea okay. what that means. Okay, so there's a picture of Drake, the, the famous rapper who lives here in Toronto. Uh, in one panel, he's shrinking away from something horrible that he that he, that he doesn't like, and that one is labeled hydrogen as a fuel. And in another one, he's point he's smiling and pointing with a, approval, and it says green hydrogen to replace black hydrogen. So let's think about where, where we're using all of this black hydrogen, it's 120 million tons of it a year that we, that we use. About a third of it is used to refine petroleum before we burn it. So probably not gonna be doing a lot of that in the future. Um, so we're gonna, our demand will drop uh, by about 30 million tons a year as a result of that, if we ever get around to it. And then another third is used to make ammonia. And ammonia is used to make all of the nitrogen fertilizers that we use on earth. And without those, about half the people on earth and their food animals would go hungry. So let's see, do we think that might be a high priority use for any green hydrogen we think we can afford to, to make and use? Probably, right? Keeping ourselves fed, pretty important. So uh, the, the remaining third is used in a diversity of applications, making chemicals of various kinds methanol and various other things. And then there are new uses of hydrogen, not as a fuel that makes sense in the decarbonized future. And one of those you mentioned uh, earlier in the conversation, which is uh, not making steel, but reducing iron ore to iron metal. Right now we do that with syngas that's made from natural gas, and that's a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen. But you can also do it with pure hydrogen and get rid of the CO2 emissions. And that's something that we absolutely can do and will do in a decarbonized future. That's a great use for green hydrogen. Making green ammonia for use as ammonia to use as a fertilizer. Getting rid of CO2 emissions from steel, which is a tremendously valuable material of construction that we're definitely going to need in the future. Those are high value uses. Putting hydrogen into natural gas to feed people's homes, to burn it in their, in their furnaces, not a high value use trying to, to stem the tide away from engines to battery electric vehicles by introducing fuel cell vehicles in the mix, not a good use, okay? So, so it's really that simple. So your argument is that there are high value uses where hydrogen actually is economic and makes a lot of sense. And you've given, given some I didn't say it was economic, oh, okay. I said that it made sense in a decarbonized future. It costs gotcha. a heck of a lot more than using the atmosphere as a free public sewer. Okay, but that's that's the thing that we got to get our heads around. 
you don't get stuff for free, right? Now, okay, yes, the electricity that we make from wind and solar is very cheap. And if we can use that directly, that will actually reduce our energy costs. So that's a good thing. But there are a lot of applications like changing the way we make steel that are going to decarbonize steel, but they're going to make steel more expensive. Let's be clear about that. Okay. Well, on that, that's probably a, a good note on which we should wrap up our conversation. Um, Paul, thank you very much for this. Uh, you've given me a lot of lot to think about and no doubt uh, our, our listeners as well. Thank you very much for this. Oh, you're welcome. And I, I apologize that in the nature, uh, nature of a conversation like this, we have to be brief. So there'll be a lot of things that I'll, I'll have said that are just kind of assertions. And I'm just saying, well, this is obviously true. And all of those things that I've said, they're well supported in articles that I've written that you can find, for instance, by going to my website, spitfireresearch.com and having a look at my blog and, and uh, so on. And you can find links to those articles that, that um, provide the, the basis for those opinions. They're not baseless. They're, they're, they really are based on solid analysis and on decades of experience working with gas. Right. And we should also mention that the Hydrogen Science Coalition has a website with all sorts of interesting information and links to other podcasts and and and, and blog posts and so on that uh, that have been done. So exactly. uh, and uh, listeners can can Google that to uh, to find uh, find that website. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Pleasure. pleasure speaking with you.